If you enjoy listening to the Purpose of Money podcast, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may be listening to this show. We love to hear your thoughts and feedback and want to continue to provide content that you love. Thanks in advance for a five-star review. You are listening to the Purpose of Money podcast, a podcast where we talk about ways to build wealth and create more freedom in your life today. I am your host, Aquania Escarnet. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Purpose of Money podcast. I'm super excited today to have a special guest, Hope Wiseman, who is the CEO of Mary and Maine. Hope is an entrepreneur, business strategist, and cannabis industry trailblazer. At the age of 25, Hope established Mary and Maine in her hometown of Prince George's County, Maryland, becoming the youngest female African-American woman cannabis dispensary owner in the United States, a graduate of Spelman College in Atlanta, where I'm from. She majored in economics in hopes of becoming an investment banker. Hope worked for SunTrust Robin Humphrey, Robinson Humphrey upon graduation, but less than a year later, she reassessed her path and found herself coming back to her true purpose to help Black people in their community and across the country through her entrepreneurial spirit. In September of 2018, she opened Marion, Maine with her mother, Dr. Octavia Simpkins Wiseman and Dr. Larry Bryant in a limited licensed medical market in Maryland. Her vision to create opportunities for Black, Indigenous, and people of color who have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs and excluded from the cannabis business ownership drives her passion for the industry. Hey, Hope, welcome to the show. I'm super glad to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and thank you for having me. Awesome. So I am so moved by your story. That's why I invited you to be on the Purpose of Money podcast, because I really, you know, my podcast shares women entrepreneurship stories. And I just really was inspired by why you decided to go into this industry. And so let's share a little bit with that story with our audience. You know, what inspired you to start a dispensary in Maryland at a time when not all states were opening cannabis stores. So tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, So it was 2014. I had just graduated from college. And for me, you know, like my bio said, I I definitely always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I was raised that way um, in a family of matriarchs that, that made sure to instill in me Um, the idea that I could do anything that I put my mind to. So my mother was an entrepreneur. Her mother was an entrepreneur. My grandmother before that also owned property in the deep South, um, you know, a long time ago when that was not normal. So, you know, I, I really did grow up watching really strong women go after things that typically, um, women don't get. Um, so for me, my mom tried to take it a step further and I feel like every generation should do the same. Um, but my mom really wanted to take it a step further and encouraged me to continuously look for opportunities to create generational wealth um, for our family. And for me, uh, being an economics major, working in banking all through college and then for a short period after school, I definitely was thinking, um, you know, in 
uh, economic markets and industries and, you know, what was going to be my thing, my entry into uh, really creating wealth for myself. Um, and I looked at the cannabis industry and in 2014, this is really early, right? You know, I looked at it and I was like, wow, this industry is going to be huge. It's growing at, you know, really, really fast rates and there's no uh, slowdown in sight. Um, and the other thing I thought that was really cool about the cannabis industry was that it's not a really a new industry, right? We already have a really booming legacy market, what some people like to call the black market, but um, just, you know, because I know a lot of people listening to this are not cannabis advocates, but, um, you know, we don't like to call it the black market. We call it the legacy market. Um, but the legacy market is huge and we can already quantify that. Um, so I already knew how large this industry could be. I already knew the depth and, and, and the amount of different types of people that use cannabis for all, the, all these different reasons. And I knew um, about the medical benefits. I understood the implications of what um, the government had done to target black and brown people during the war on drugs using cannabis. I understood all of these things. And I realized that this industry was going to be something that really could kind of catapult my start. Um, to building wealth. I don't think that, you know, one dispensary, which a lot of people think, oh, I get a dispensary, I'm going to be rich, and I'm creating wealth for myself. Like, you, you're on the road, you have, you have started the journey, but that's not the end-all be-all. But I knew that this was going to be my start. I also knew I had to get in at the ground floor level. Um, I knew that this industry would grow to be large, and large players were getting into it early. So that would mean that I would eventually get priced out as a middle-class, um, just, you know, regular, educated um, woman, I knew, but not independently wealthy, um, not able to go anywhere and get large loans, all these things. And I was young with, with a little bit of experience going up against people who are coming from the healthcare industry, politics, um, athletes, all these people that literally come with a lot of experience, a lot of contacts, resources, and or money themselves. So I knew that my only chance was at the ground floor level. I knew also that if I didn't do it, Potentially, there could be nobody else like me that was able to pave a pathway. So, you know, for me, um, in the well, I'll take that back. I didn't know that at first. Um, when I first started getting into it, I just knew that I, my chance was to get into the ground floor level. I felt like the garage was closing and I had to slide in um, right, right when it was the right time. And, you know, I, I, I do believe that I got in early enough where I was able to learn um, a lot of things that you can do and that you can't do. And the right way, I made a lot of mistakes that I'm able now to teach other people to not do, as well as I have really become an industry advocate and I have been able to um, really help influence legislation that allows for a more equitable industry. Um, so I'm really happy with what has happened. I did not know that I would be blazing a trail in the way that I am. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think about that as I'm going through, um, you know, my days trying to plan and build um, upon this business. I really just think about um, at the end of the day, this is the jump start. This is the beginning of my journey. And I care very much about building wealth for my family, but I also care about sharing it to my community because although, like I said, I grew up in a middle-class household, a lot of friends, family, doctors, lawyers, I had that around me, but nobody was teaching me about how to maintain wealth and how to really, really get it um, and how to build on that. So I really like love what I do. I love learning um, and I love teaching. 
I, I hope to see, you know, I hope that my, by my kids' generations, all of their friends are able to do things and, and really start to build wealth for themselves and their family. And I hope my kids are able to maintain what I am building now. I absolutely love that. And I think that's how most journeys start, right? We don't know the trail we're going to blaze. We just know I need to get into this. You are drawn to it. You are passionately involved and you had enough knowledge to get started. But one thing I want to also say is 88% of millionaires are self-made and it's through entrepreneurship, right? And so you also have found one of the fastest ways to literally build your own wealth because you're not depending on another source, right? You're not, you don't have a boss who's deciding when you work, how you work, how much money you can earn. So you are limitless in that that sense. So I want to know more about, you mentioned the medical benefits and in your bio, you have two doctors you started this company with, including your mother. So what can you share about the medical possible benefits? I know everyone's reaction could be different, but what are some of those things and how has that significantly helped the Black community where a lot of times we are prohibited from getting medicine because we're supposed to tolerate more pain or we're not told that we can do certain things to manage our health earlier. Um, How can this change the game? Definitely. So that's such a great question. And, you know, cannabis is a scheduled one controlled substance. That means that there is essentially there, there has been no real research coming out in the U.S. around cannabis uh, and their medical and its medical benefits. Although we know that cannabis used to be used in medicine, um, you know, pre-Reagan, uh, there, we, we use cannabis in the U.S. as a typical ingredient in a lot of pharmaceutical drugs, right? So just to know that and then see how it's been demonized over the, these years is so crazy. But now things are changing. Um, you know, the, actually, uh, the government, the federal government just passed a bill that will allow for more companies to be able to um, use their cannabis for federal research. So previously, there's only been one uh, institution that has been allowed to grow cannabis and then do research on it and actual print. Um, research on it. And that cannabis wasn't that good because the school didn't know what they were doing. A lot of sticks, stems. It's not actual commercial grade cannabis that you're buying at a dispensary. Um, so now some large scale operators are going to get that opportunity and we're going to get a lot of really great research. Um, however, we already have some and we have a lot of antidotal research. A lot of people have been using cannabis for years um, for different reasons. So we know some basic things already. We know that um, all, there are hundreds of cannabinoids in the plant and the cannabinoid is like what you know as THC or CBD. There's also CBN, there's Delta-8 THC, there's CBG, there's, there's all of these different cannabinoids. There's over a hundred. Um, there's also terpenes in, that are naturally found in cannabis, which are naturally found in other things that we consume, um, like essential oils and fruits and vegetables and other Um, the parts of nature, plants, and things like that. So these things are naturally found in the cannabis plant. And holistically together, we call it the entourage effect of being all together. They give off different uh, feelings based on your natural endocannabinoid system. So what we have naturally in our body that connects to our nervous system, our circular system, all of the systems that make our bodies work, uh, these cannabinoids can regulate that system and put you in homeostasis. So that's you functioning at your very best, um, you know, your body's very best 
um, function. And everybody has a different endocannabinoid system. So that means we all accept cannabis different ways. That's why you can smoke something or you can take an edible and I can take an edible and we have two completely different reactions. Um, we know cannabis can help with so many different effects, but there's a lot of uh, experimenting that has to be done because of what I just said, because of the difference in our endocannabinoid systems and how we accept cannabis, as well as our tolerance levels. Um, but cannabis has been known to really help with anxiety and depression. It's been known to have anti-inflammatory properties. So you work out a lot. Um, it helps your muscles recover. It can help with people um, with, with immune diseases and other types of dietary issues. Um, it can really help with inflammation with people that are going through um, Crohn's and things like that. I mean, there's just so many different implications and a lot of people have had a, a lot of different results. People with cancer have been known to be able to take cannabis to manage those symptoms. Um, it's, it's really a, a useful, uh, natural uh, alternative healthcare solution, honestly. So, you know, I say a lot of people even that have been medicating what they call adult use or recreationally, they really are medicating. Um, cannabis use is medical use always because it always has medicinal properties. So I'm really excited that I'm able to offer this alternative solution to uh, the African-American community, like you said, that has been often denied uh, the, the right to have access to, to typical health care. Um, and a lot of times some of the drugs that they're giving us are killing us, too. Um, they're giving us more symptoms and more drugs to manage those those symptoms. And, you know, we know the healthcare industry is, is very much so based on capitalism. So not that the legal cannabis industry isn't, I won't lie, you know, it is. You know, you look at the numbers, you see how much this industry is um, is yielding. We say that by 2024, the industry will be worth 68 to $70 billion dollars. Um, so, and that's only continuous to grow at this point. The industry is not even federally legal yet. So it is definitely capitalistic, but at the end of the day, a lot of people in this industry genuinely care about the plant and they really believe in its medicinal properties. Um, and I just love the, the ability to offer this alternative, um, option. You know, I don't think it's the salt that, you know, I'm not one of those people that's going to say cannabis is going to solve all your problems. But um, it will give you an alternative way to manage potential symptoms that you are experiencing. Uh, that's great. And I think that's important. You named a lot. Just to recap, it could be anxiety. It could be cancer treatment while you're going through the treatment and, and nausea, Crohn's disease, which I actually have a family member affected by Crohn's and who is actually prescribed uh, cannabis to help with that. So I know firsthand it can make a difference in, in their quality of life while they're yeah. experiencing certain chronic medical conditions. So mm -hmm. I want to talk more now about your journey. You were the first, you were the youngest, you were African-American. What challenges did you face as yeah. a young African-American woman in an industry that has yet to see its full potential. Um, logistically, what are some of the things that you had to go through, if you don't mind sharing a story or two about yeah. that? So just in general, I don't care if you are a wealthy white man, this industry is difficult. So I'll say that first and foremost, because I think sometimes there's a picture painted that, you know, I had a rough time because of who I am. I, I think everyone has a rough time and then there are layers added on top of that. And I honestly, I think a lot of black people know that already. There's, things are tough for everyone and then 
we have this layer. And then for me, it's like I had multiple layers. I'm, I'm, I was young when I got into this. I was 22 when I first started pursuing this. So very young, going up against very established business people. So that was one um, black um, lack of experience as well. I never run a company of this magnitude before. Um, and it had a, a medical background, which I don't have. Um, so all of those things, I definitely faced issues in the beginning. Um, and then the industry in 2014 was very different than it is now. This industry is like rapidly growing. So you learn a lot. People even say that, you know, being in the industry is like dog years. So for me, I'm like, oh, really? Like an OG, OG. Um, but that's crazy because, you know, <laughs> it, it, it hasn't even been <laughs> 10 years for me. Um, but I'm approaching that. I, I believe my biggest issue back in 2014 was that just that lack of resources and information. I did not know how to uh, to assemble a team for a license. I did not know how to go about raising capital. I didn't know how to go about, you know, getting the subject matter expertise that I needed to go through these application processes. I had never, these application processes are often like um, responding to a government RFP. And I did not, you know, have experience technical writing and grant writing and things like that. So for me, I had to do a lot of research and kind of figure out best practices and things like that. I was really, really dedicated to figuring it out. Um, and because I didn't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to pour into learning or paying consultants to do things for me, I had to teach myself. Um, and I had to build a team just of people that I knew uh, that trusted me and that wanted to see us go, you know, succeed, not necessarily people that had the right knowledge. Um, so I'm forever thankful to my mother and Dr. Bryant, who are both dentists. My mom is a general dentist by trade. Dr. Bryant is an oral surgeon. Um, you know, then two together really supported me. And between the three of us, we bootstrapped the process in the beginning. That being said, we were on a shoestring budget compared to people who were able to throw money at applications, you know, hire experts for every little piece. And, and use their expertise, not just their knowledge, but their names and their resumes on their applications. And we just had to do what we had to do with us. Um, we hired a few consultants, but again, on a shoestring budget, you're gonna get a shoestring um, <laughs> consultant. So we had to do what we had to do. And I really just, I, I credit our success to um, just being um, just tenacious and, and uh, just not taking no for an answer. Anything we didn't know, we went and figured it out. We definitely took a risk and spent money traveling to meet people and talk to people and check out different dispensaries and figure things out back in 2014 because there's not a lot, there wasn't a lot of research out and a lot of people who have even done what, what we had done then. Um, but, you know, now I look back, I'm like, there's I, there are people like me that exist that talk about their stories and give their experience. And if I had had that, I definitely would have accelerated it. We probably wouldn't have spent as much money um, traveling. Um, I, we would have been able to hire consultants that really knew what they were doing, that had real experience. So I'd say that's probably the most difficult. And then secondly, you know, even post-award and even now um, running my business, it is very difficult to these businesses are very expensive to run. So, okay, you know, you might be making top line revenue and just for ease of, of numbers, you might be making top line revenue of a million dollars a year, but you might be spending 900,000, um, you know, and then that 100,000, remember too, in cannabis, you're not taxed regularly in cannabis because it's federally illegal, it's a controlled substance. 
Um, you cannot deduct typical business expenses. So you can't deduct your rent expense, your payroll, your marketing expenses. None of these things you can deduct. So I'm paying taxes on my top line revenue, on my gross revenue. And, you know, oftentimes you just heard how much I said that you might spend, right? So if I'm spending, only thing you can deduct is your cost, your cost of goods sold. So that for a retail dispensary, that is only the cost of the medicine. And that means that potentially, I mean, let's say you spend half a million dollars, you made a million, you spend half a million dollars, but then you spend another 400000 in payroll, rent, marketing, office supplies, whatever, whatever. Um, and you have $100,000 profit, you're getting taxed on $500,000. So potentially, your, your, tax, your, your tax bill might be more than $100,000. And you only had $100,000 profit. So this industry is like, it's, it's very difficult to manage. You have to, you have to really be smart and savvy, lean. Even when you're making a lot of money, you got to be lean. People are not going to understand that. Um, this industry has a long way to go, but has so much potential. Um, and, and I really just, you know, I, I think I'm going to go back to something I said in the beginning. I knew that this industry was worth even going through these hardships in the beginning because we already know what, how, how much it's actually worth. This is not an industry that is, you know, crypto has come in and like you see people, it's like booming sometimes. And then sometimes it's kind of like, what's happening in crypto? Like, is this going to die? Kind of like NFTs. NFTs came out, they were hot. You know, now it's like kind of cooling down, right? Is this going to be a big industry or not? Cannabis, we already know it is. We already know people are buying cannabis on the street. We already can quantify how much cannabis is floating around. So eventually we know this is all going to become legal. We already know the industry is going to be huge. So it's worth kind of going through these hardships to get in at the ground floor level so that you're not barred once it becomes easy. Look, once cannabis becomes easy to get into, it, you're, you're too late. I appreciate you with sharing that transparency. And honestly, the tax game, I had no idea. That sounds like a headache, especially when you're trying to feed people, right? And it's not just you that you're trying to build wealth for. You have staff. Like, how big is your team? At yeah. this point. So um, we are, there's about 20 of us. I have about eight full-time employees. The rest are part-time employees. Um, I'm also building out other parts of the business outside of just our retail um, piece. So like later this year, you'll probably start hearing things about WiseCo. WiseCo is our parent company and some of the other things we're doing. So I just made my first hire on that side of the business. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of people. I'm I'm responsible for people's livelihoods, and that is a lot of pressure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Even well, for my own self. And, yeah. you know, my mother now, my mother works with the company every day. She's full-time with our company as well. Um, so, you know, th- there's a lot of pressure, and I definitely feel, I, I, I feel sometimes overwhelmed by it, but it does make me also feel really great that I'm, I've created something that can provide for this many people. I love it. And you are a true boss. Like, this is crazy. Um, <laughs> so just to clarify, you are also full-time with your business, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm full-time with the business. 
Were there any steps that you took financially or educationally before you started to help you prepare for full-time entrepreneurship? Um, the reason I asked that question is because a lot of my listeners are entrepreneurs. We have They have nine to five jobs, but they do have a side hustle or a business they want to go full-time in. And they're constantly asking for tips on the transition. Yeah. Um, so if you if you were the one who took the big leap, you could be honest about it. But if you did have anything you did to prepare, you know, please share. Yeah. Okay. So I'll be honest, but I still have tips to share. But um, honestly, for me, I was right out of school, right? Um, While I was in school, I saved a lot of money, Um, worked a lot of jobs, did a lot of different things. I was all over the place. I used to work for Red Bull. Um, If anyone remembers the little mini poopers with the can on the back and Red Bull girls, that was me. Um, I was a Falcons cheerleader at one point. I worked in my school's writing center, helping to edit papers. Um, I also, at one point, you know, I bartended in college and all these different things. So I saved a lot of money while I was in school. I was fortunate enough to go throughout school without student loans due to scholarships um, and also my parents. Um, So I was really fortunate to come out of school with, you know, hardly any debt with money saved, um, got a great job right out of school, was saving money um, at that point. So I started my entrepreneurial journey, yes, with some money. What I thought was some money in the cannabis industry and going through what we went through, we probably spent within a couple months, um, but I was lucky to have people to lean on. So moved back in with my mom in the beginning, which was hard for me. I had been gone for seven years. Moved back in with my mother, started the business, wasn't making any money for the first few years, didn't pay myself until about year two of operations. I worked in the business as well, like physically day-to-day in the store. I'm not day-to-day in the store at all anymore. I don't work in the store, but um, started out working in the store for zero dollars. I would say that, you know, if you really want to, if you want to take the leap, you're going to have to do things like that. You're going to have to be okay with um, staying, you know, staying low till you get to the next point. And you're going to have to be okay with putting in hard work and not seeing fruits of the labor, uh, uh, you know, initially. Um, I went through that, but I definitely had support going through it. Um, and I, you know, it, it took a while, but it paid off. It paid off. Now I'm able to fully support myself. I'm able to travel. I'm able to focus on business development for our business and not day-to-day operations of one retail store. Um, But it took a a good year of me actually working in the business. It took two years of us trying to get the store off the ground with no pay, then another year of no pay and working really hard in the business to get to that point. So I'd say if you're really looking to transition a little bit more smoothly, if you stay out, I mean, it's all about saving. It's all about making sure you're saving and you're gaining the knowledge that you need and you have a plan. So I would say if I were working a job, I had a side business, I would just continuously have a plan to scale the business. Once you do, once you make $1,000, you can make $5,000. Make Once you make five, you can make 10. And once you make 10, you can make 20. You have to continuously build things that are scalable, create, um, you know, create processes, create uh, things that you can constantly repeat and that you can also give to other people to repeat. That's how you scale a business. And once you get to the point where you're making double what you make at your uh, nine to five with, with, you know, two times less 
uh, work hours put in, that's when you leave your business. That's when, or when you leave your, your job and you focus on your business. And at that point, that's when you try and scale 10 times from where you start. Um, but I, yeah, I really, I, I get worried when people are like, should I just quit it all and start today? I was like, you don't even know if you can do it because it takes a lot of consistency and it takes a lot of grit. And I'm sorry, I don't think everybody got it. I don't think everybody got it in them. Every, well, I'll take that back. Everyone has it, but a lot of people are just not willing to do it. You think you are, you want it, you say you want it, but you're not really like really willing to do it. So I like to see those people that are willing to stay up till midnight after they worked all day working on their business and they get their business to a point where it's like, okay, I know I'm going to be comfortable if I quit because for six months now I've been making, you know, at least what I make at my other job for six months now. I know that's not going to change. So I know if I leave this, I'm going to be comfortable, you know, because I've been saving that money. I haven't even touched it. I don't spend that money. You know, those are the people that are ready to move to the next level. I love it. Those are really good tips. So guys, I hope you were listening. She gave you some good advice. Savings is key, but also monitoring your progress and your journey, making sure that you are consistently scaling up. And I always say entrepreneurship, full-time entrepreneurship is not for everyone. So if you know that it's not for you, you can always continue to maintain both your nine to five and your business, as long as you are giving whoever you're giving your services or products to all that you can, right? So continuing to manage a business well. So I hope this has been an awesome conversation and I'm so thankful that you shared your story with us today. Uh, one of my signature questions I ask all my guests is, what is your purpose for money? Yeah, my purpose for money is, is genuinely to build generational wealth. I want to see when I'm no longer here, I I want to my story to inspire others at the same time I wanted to inspire my own family. I expect my my kids 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 to be talking about their great 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 grandmother um and the things that she did and how that has inspired uh a a history of women entrepreneurs of of men that have carried on legacies because started by women and ha- that have supported and loved women and and built things that support women. That's what I want my legacy to be. And that's my purpose for what I do. Um, I want to teach other people how to do the same. Um, And I'm not one of those people that's like, you know, I'm not going to tell you that I know everything, right? I'm just going to tell you what I've been through. Um, There are people who haven't been been through what I've been through. And that's my audience right now. As I continue to elevate, my audience will change. Um, but I, I love to share my story because that's that's my purpose. That's why I'm here. Um, my mother told me um, when I was when I was leaving for college, she said to me that she named me Hope for her um, because she was going through some some hard things when I was born, and she started her dental practice the year I was born as well. But she was going through some other hard personal things that during that time. And when I went away to college, she said, "But now I want you to go be Hope for everyone else." So I just, that's, that's my purpose. That's why I'm doing this. That's why I care. I'm comfortable now. Like I don't need to do more. I, I, I really am comfortable with my life right now. Um, but I, I will never stop chasing more and, and continue success because I know that this is what it's going to take to inspire a generation uh, after me, other people, as well as my own family. I, I really want my own family generations from now, I hope I'm looking down from heaven and I'm like, 
yeah, we started a real, I started something there. So <laughs> I love it. Yes. Trailblazer true at heart. Now I'd love it. If you could just drop your website and anywhere yeah. else that guests can follow you, connect with you. Uh, we definitely want to make sure those out there who want to get in touch can. Definitely. So guys, I'm most active on Instagram. So you can follow me at I am hope so dope. Um, I'm getting my personal website together. So you can definitely check it out and drop your email there. Um, and you'll get to see when I drop a new website, but hopewiseman.com. Um, and then if you want to follow my dispensary and that journey, um, we are at Mary and Maine. So M-A-R-Y-A-N-D-M-A-I-N on all social medias and um, maryandmaine.com for our web address. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Hope, for being on the show. Guys, if you like this episode, please like it, share it with those who need to hear it. I so appreciate all of you for listening and your continued support. Until next time, keep building generational wealth. Thank you for listening to the Purpose of Money podcast. For more resources and information, check out my website, thepurposeofmoney.com. And while you're there, please sign up for our newsletter so you have the latest information on new episodes and blog posts. Until next time, keep creating freedom in your life today.